Welcome to Photophonica, a new podcast that explores the sound behind photographs. I'm your host, Greg Miller. I would call myself a people photographer and a visual storyteller. For a while now, I've been thinking about telling stories in a new way by creating audio around a single photograph. Making pictures is so much about putting a frame around the world and excluding everything else. I believe this is where photography gets its power, from what's included within the frame, but also what's excluded. Recently, and maybe this is my age, I have been increasingly more interested in the story outside the frame. What else is a picture trying to tell us? This is the idea behind Photophonica, to start with a single photograph and listen to the sounds and voices within and around that picture. Today, for the inaugural episode, I chose a photograph from 2016 that I made of my friend Russ Darling. I photographed Russ as he was building a stone wall in our small town in northeastern Connecticut. Russ is a Vietnam-era veteran who has worn many hats over his life. Poet, artist, former school bus driver, and most recently, stonemason. In this picture, Russ is set in a wooded backyard in the early spring bud still showing on tree branches. He's wearing a beige yellow construction jacket and jeans, wispy gray hair, and a short scruffy beard. Brown and gray stones of various sizes are scattered all around, covering most of the yard. To the left, you can make out the beginnings of a stone wall, but the wall is mostly taken apart. It's hard to know from the picture if he's building the wall or taking it down. To the right and behind him are the remnants of a laundry line and the bars of an old swing set without the swing. Russ is walking towards us with his eyes gazing downward, and in his right arm, he cradles a stone as if it were a child. Russ begins by telling us a story of his beloved childhood dog. A word of warning that Russ's story contains an instance of abuse that some listeners might find troubling. Thank you so much for listening. Here's Russ. My first dog, Blackie. He wasn't all black, but he was black and had a white stomach. He's a Border Collie mix. I can almost remember the road we went to get him. He became my closest friend. We grew up together. He was, he didn't, he didn't hurt me. You know, he wasn't, he didn't say anything mean to me. He didn't, he didn't kick me. He didn't push me down the stairs. He didn't do anything that the rest of the world, my world was doing to me at the time. We would spend all day in the woods. I'd carry him home at the end of when, a couple of years later, I'm still carrying him home at the end of the day because we'd, we'd leave as soon as we could in the morning and get back when it was dark or just before supper because then I was going to get spanked or beat again. So, But I didn't care. I had a wonderful day. I was chasing deer trails through the woods, and it was my closest friend for the longest time. That was my probably my first friend. He was very protective of me uh, eventually once he got out of puppyhood. And my stepfather chased me around the yard with a hammer one time. That was typical. And I... I went over and let the dog loose and had the dog chase him around. I thought it was kind of funny. My stepfather didn't see the humor in that. And uh, he didn't bite him, but he, he would have or could have. And shortly thereafter, a week or two or whatever, we went to Vermont, and he paid the neighbor $15 to shoot the dog. I was 10 years old then. I remember spending weeks, part of that summer, riding around my bicycle, 
trying to find his body because I figured by this time he's gone, but never found him. The neighbor buried him somewhere on his property. But And the neighbor didn't like the dog because he had sheep, and my dog would go over there and run around because he was a border collie. That was his job. And the neighbor probably didn't mind. He got $15 richer, and the, my dog would jump the fence and chase his sheep around. So everybody was happy except me. I just say I cried a lot. I was riding around crying. I, a friend of mine, I think my friend Charlie wrote to me, I tried not to cry in front of him. I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't cry in front of people in those days. With my stepfather's family, if you cried in front of them, that means they succeeded in what they were trying to do is make people unhappy. That, so I, once I figured that out, and I don't know what age I was, but 10 or younger, uh, the idea was not to give them their joy. So they just slapped me and punched me and whatever, and I had blood on my teeth. You know, if you get slapped in the mouth, sometimes you get a fat, a bloody lip. And I remember smiling at him and a little blood up my mouth just, yeah, he didn't hurt me. You know, that kind of attitude. I was trying to convey that to them. And sure, it, it smarted. Sure, it hurt. But I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to give them satisfaction. And I'm sure I didn't know that word, satisfaction, then. But I knew that that's what they wanted, and I wasn't going to give it to them anymore. I watched them destroy a family, their own family, which was crazy. And, yeah, that was sad. It was sad. I think that's what got me writing because there was so much I didn't convey to people. I couldn't. It was who was going to, you know, one thing, who was going to believe me and who was going to listen and or who did I trust? And that, there was very few people. On the street, you, you wear a face. You know, when you're around the wild and crazy guys, you're wild and crazy because you don't want them to beat you down or beat you up. <laughs> and then when you're around the, 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 up, the nice kids you really want to try to be with, you try to act nice and, you know, straighten up the collar. And somewhere along the line, I think you almost forget who you are. You know, what, which one's me? I was the kid who sat by the window and watched birds fly. <laughs> or, or I'd find something else out there that was a whole lot nicer than anything going on in the classroom. My grandfather in Vermont, he was the only person I talked with. We'd walk in the woods and... We were supposed to be hunting, and he'd give me a BB gun and what, I'm nine years old, eight years old. and He didn't mentally beat me up or physically, so it was, it was like going on a real vacation. So I used to love going there. I can't remember what we talked about. We, you know, it, was just, it was just a joy, of, a flow of conversation that there was no worry in it. I don't know if he ever said he loved me, but I could tell that he did. And that's probably the only person I can attribute that to. If I, and I've never thought about that before. Thank you. I worked with kids for a long time, so I used to enjoy seeing their little twinkle in their eye when they were seeing something new. Even though they didn't know what it was called, they didn't know the word or the name, but they were still happy to see it, whatever it was. And I don't know if I ever applied that to myself, except maybe in right now with that instance. Huh. Yeah, powerful. The sadness is attached to the part that the good things we're so short. A moment. And I describe our lives as that, a moment, a series of moments. And some of them we hang on to, and some of them we're glad to get rid of. But they never go away. I was a bus driver for 25 years in uh, 
quite a few towns in the Northeast Connecticut. At my first day on the job, I saw this little girl get up the steps in another town, and uh, I, she didn't really say anything, but I could tell. I glanced at the house, I glanced at some adult who was there, and I realized that she lived where I did when I was a kid at that age. Hasn't anybody learned anything? You know, it's like, because I didn't have kids, so I played with my sister's kids and all that. I, I can't define it for myself, but I remember getting hit by that. There's still so many things wrong with families, and people aren't getting it. And I didn't mean to be, but I was accurate in that, that depiction. And like I say, it had to be body language. It was intuition, because I later learned that, yes, I was correct. You know, she was living in this sad place. I realized that there were still kids out there that, there was no one talking to them. Even about what's important to someone eight years old is what their bicycle maybe, uh, their dog or their rabbit or their little brother that mom just brought home, uh, you know, uh, or the doghouse his uncle helped them build. I mean, it's those are the things that they want to talk about, and they may not have anybody to talk to about that. So I used to engage little kids in talk. figured they probably didn't have anywhere else. I don't know if I saw me there, but I, I think I was trying to offer what I realized was missing in people's lives still, including my own. So I was trying to give, trying to give what I didn't receive because I saw the need in other people, and that was powerful. I'm always amazed um, all these years later. But, uh, this is stuff I wouldn't have done. <laughs> I controlled all that. And I've noticed in recent years, it's harder and harder to find that control. It's some, some part needs to phew, let go. I don't have the desire slash strength slash whatever it is to hold that anymore. It's, I'm saying, well, hold it. <laughs> I held that in check when I should have been crying. I wasn't. And now I guess I'm supposed to. So I am. That was Russ Darling, recorded in April 2018. To see my photograph of Russ, a picture of the finished wall, and some bonus audio of Russ reading one of his poems, visit photophonica.com. While you're there, you can learn more about Photophonica. Drop me a line and tell me what you think. I would love to hear from you. This episode of Photophonica was produced by me, Greg Miller, in January 2022. Music by Lilo Moriale, Antarte, and Ken Cormier. I'm so grateful for script editing assistance from my wife, Tina Chiappetta Miller, and my daughter, Joya Miller. It's a family affair. I receive special audio help and general encouragement from Tanya Workman, Ken Cormier, Michael Chauvin Dalton, and Dan Pilver. The name Photophonica was the brainchild of Richard Kraft. Also special thanks to Nicole Werbeck at NPR, who gave me the first assignment that combined pictures and audio and started this idea down its path. Photophotica can be heard on all the usual podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, click subscribe, and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. I will be back soon with another story I'm excited to share with you. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>